Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode, we are asking what one can learn by looking at Ukraine from America. Our guest for this episode is Marcia Shore, American historian and scholar, associate professor at Yale University, where she teaches modern European intellectual history. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We are using a big part of your donations to help Ukrainian resistance and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Hello, Marcy. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. I'm so happy to, to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm moved that you're managing to make podcast at such a moment. Marcy, uh, you are, a, a, of course, you're a friend of Ukraine. You wrote uh, uh, Ukrainian Nights, a, a book about the Maidan. You, you're also very interested. You, you traveled a lot uh, into Ukraine. And you, I think you are one of those uh, Western world intellectuals who know the most Ukraine, uh, who know the Ukraine the most. Can you tell me your personal story, how you started discovering Ukraine and how this perception of Ukraine evolved uh, across the years? Well, my the story of my connection to Ukraine is really part of a larger story of my connection to Eastern Europe. And I've noticed that people always want to find some kind of bloodline or ethnic connection, which one can always find if you keep going back far enough. But for me, it's really a generational story. I was at an impressionable age in 1989. I was part of the last generation in America to grow up during the Cold War. The Cold War defined the political and social context of my childhood and my teenage years. And what was dramatic was not that I had a personal connection to Eastern Europe or that I knew anything in particular about the Soviet Union. What was dramatic was the fact that the context of a world that was profoundly divided by this Iron Curtain with such drama that we all grew up thinking that at any moment now this evil empire, as, as Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union, could decide to blow up the whole world and we were on the verge of a nuclear apocalypse. And that would just go on forever. And then from one moment to the next, it ended. You know, and I was 17 years old in 1989. So the drama of something that had been forever suddenly ending was very profound at the time, even though I didn't have any ostensibly intimate connection. To, I had never been there. I had never been anywhere in Europe. Um, like most Americans, nobody in my family had ever had a passport. Um, we didn't travel. But I remember where I was when I heard that the Berlin Wall fell. And I had this sense that something extraordinary was happening, that this door that had been locked, that was going to be locked forever, was suddenly opening. And that was extremely seductive. I mean, I wanted to go through the door merely by virtue of the fact that it had unexpectedly opened. Did you think about, for example, primarily Central Europe? Because I have the impression that when the Western intellectuals started discovering this uh, post-social reality, post-socialist reality, this was primarily focused on the Central Europe, on Czech Republic, on Poland, on, on Hungary, maybe on Baltic states. And of course, there was this, this fascination with Kunderian vision of the Central Europe. Uh, did you also feel that way? Or you wanted to go farther and discover, okay, but what, what was happening in the, in the Soviet Union? I wanted to, I think like a lot of idealistic young people, I knew nothing about anything, but I wanted to discover everything. Everything interested me. I had grown up in this bourgeois, suburban, small city. So the feeling of coming of age and escaping from my parents' home and the world's opening was just infinitely seductive. I wanted to go everywhere. Um, the first time I, I crossed the former Soviet border was 1993, the summer of 1993, and I was in Prague 
doing research for my undergraduate thesis. And I went to visit a friend in Moscow at the time. Um, the first time I went to Kiev was much later. That was 2002, a summer of 2002, when I was doing research now already for my first book in Moscow. And then I went to the Kiev archives. But really, my introduction to Ukraine can't be dated from 2002, because really my introduction to Ukraine came about in the Czech Republic. And it's it's a very unusual story, I think. It's a very personal story, I and mean, I'm happy to tell it. I don't know how relevant it is for the rest of the world or to what it, it's not probably a very common experience. But I had, I was completely, I, I, I was infatuated with the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, and I wanted to study the philosophy of dissent because like many Americans and foreigners, I was captivated by Václav Havel's language. I later realized that much of the credit for that captivation goes to his extraordinary translator, Paul Wilson, um, whose translations were gorgeous um, and particularly enthralling. And the voice in which Havel was speaking, which I later realized was you know, the voice of of a whole tradition in continental philosophy I had never encountered at the time was something that I had never encountered before in American politics that seemed completely different and other and much more romantic and much more beautiful. And I wanted to delve into that. And so I mean, these are very long stories, but I'll try to make it a little shorter. And so I, I, I wanted to learn Czech, which turned out to be, of course, much harder than I had ever understood. I, I didn't know, like many Americans, I was monolingual. Um, I didn't speak any other languages, and I didn't know anything about Slavic languages. And the first time I was in, um, I, I was in the Czech Republic in, in Slovakia, which was also the summer of 1993, and I asked somebody how to say post office. And she said, well, it depends. Be, uh, you know, are you going to the post office, around the post office? Are you talking about people who work at the post office? Because the word post office is going to change seven times depending on its grammatical use in the sentence. And I thought that was a joke. I, mean, I, I had no idea what a declension was. I had never learned Latin. And then it just seemed so absurdly difficult that I thought nobody could ever possibly do this. But perhaps precisely for that reason, I became obsessed. I really, really wanted to learn because it was so crazily difficult and because it was a language that was absolutely opaque. I, I went to the library at Stanford in 1992, it must have been, and I picked up one of Václav Havel's plays and I opened it and I... I couldn't pick out a single word. I, mean, I don't know any Italian, but if I pick up a book in Italian, there are lots of cognates and lots of things I could understand, but Czech was just opaque. So I became obsessed with this idea of learning Czech. And so then after I graduated from undergraduate, I first did an intensive Czech summer program in Vermont, and then I flew to Prague. But I quickly discovered that Back in Prague, just when I was trying to learn Czech, everyone else was trying to learn English, and so nobody actually wanted to speak to me in Czech. So then I had this idea that I should go somewhere where nobody spoke English, and then I would have a real immersion experience. Um, and please feel free to cut me off if this story is boring for all of these listeners who you know, understandably have things to do other than hearing about my attempts to learn Czech when I was 21 years old. So I went to this very small town in the Czech Republic, a provincial place where everything looked radically different because these were not people who experienced the revolution the way formerly imprisoned dissidents you know, and the intelligentsia experienced it in Prague. You know, these were people for whom the revolution was in many ways you know, ambivalent and not necessarily a good thing and much less dramatic. And their lives hadn't changed that much, but the ways in which they had changed had often made them more difficult. But one of the reasons I was able to go there is because they were, of course, looking for English teachers because under communism, everybody had been taught their mandatory 12 years of Russian. And now suddenly they were trying to convert all the Russian teachers into English teachers. But it wasn't that easy to do. And of course, it takes a long time to learn a language. And so in the gymnasium in this little town, they were struggling to find English teachers. Um, and so they hired me to teach English at this gymnasium. 
they were trying to find various people to teach English. They converted two Russian teachers um, who were lovely but didn't speak very much English. And they also found a woman who had come basically escaping a bad marriage in Kharkiv, who, who had come with her then young daughter, um, who must have been around nine or, or ten at the time. Um, and, and she, I'll, I'll call her Galina, um, to protect her identity a bit. Um, so she was from a, a town outside of Donetsk in the Donbass. Um, she grew up in, I think, in some ways, a typical family in the Donbass. Everybody else worked in the mines, including her mother, who, included, who continued to work in the mines even when she had young children. Um, but Galina went to the university um, and she studied English and German and clearly had a talent for it because despite the fact that she really had no occasion to use those languages in any kind of a natural way during the Soviet period, she was quite a bit older than I was. And when we met in 94, she was 37, I think. So you can count backwards and figure out the generation. And she had... She grew up speaking Russian as her stronger language, but really bilingual in Ukrainian and Russian, like many people. So she had the advantage that people who grow up bilingually do. Um, and she was just a very talented student of languages. So she learned English and German quite well. And in other circumstances, people might have wanted only native speakers, but given that there was a, you know, a limited selection of people, especially for small towns, they hired Galina to teach English. And she also had, which most of the Americans didn't have, she actually had a background in English language teaching pedagogy, the way that people who have actually gone to the university to study how to teach languages as opposed to just native speakers have. Um, so she was there uh, in this very small provincial town with her daughter. Um, they learned Czech very quickly. Um, she spoke Czech, Galina spoke Czech extremely well but with a very clear Russian accent or Russian language accent, I should say. Um, and her daughter very quickly, you know, became bilingual without an accent as children have the ability to do. Um, and she, they were living in this little boarding house, this little dormitory, this kind of, you know, internat attached to the school, which was falling apart a little bit. Um, and, they had this little dilapidated apartment there and I had this little room there and we were the only two foreigners there, really three foreigners if we include her daughter. Um, and we became extremely close. I mean, it was a very unusual friendship in many ways. I must have been 22. I would, yeah, I must have been 22. She was at that time 37 and her daughter was 13. So I was right in between the mother and the daughter, and I became quite close to both of them. You know, in the way in which women, if they're, I realize I'm talking to a man, but I'm like, in some ways, it's a very gendered story. It's a very women's friendship. There's a kind, there was a kind of intimacy about it that felt very gendered to me. There was a lot of time spent sitting in the kitchen and talking about former boyfriends and talking about the meaning of love and was marriage worth it and what it meant to have a child. Um, and, and we were, in some ways, we were thrown together because we were looked at as very foreign and other by the other people in the town. And it was a hard, it's hard to blend in in a small town. It's hard to be a foreigner in a place where everybody knows everybody else and everybody kind of looks askance at you because you have an accent. But there was also something ineffable that drew us together the way you're sometimes drawn to people for reasons that don't necessarily make sense on the surface. We had nothing in common. I mean, she, you know, she spent her whole life in the Soviet Union, raised in this little mining town in the, in the Donbass. Um, and I came from a, you know, a Jewish community in a bourgeois suburban part of a small American town in Pennsylvania. We were different generations. We had different experiences. Um, but there was some kind of intimacy and understanding between us. And also this kind of intensity when you are very alone in, in a place and feel rejected by other people, you know, and your, your lifeline is this this one close relationship.
It's interesting that an American and a Ukrainian could feel very alone in that uh, Czech village at that time. Uh, maybe, maybe this is something that uh, that links you. But let me ask uh, the following question, which is very important for me actually right now, because the nineties that you describe is the period very difficult period for Ukrainians. Many many people were were dreaming to leave the country, and Ukraine was really a, a blind spot. I remember reading uh, Timothy Garton Ash essay about the way how he crossed the border between, I think, Slovakia or I think it was mid-90s or late-90s and Ukraine. It was like going into hell, you know, uh, into into the into the reality of people who are corrupt, who are post-Soviet, who are rude, cruel, uh, etc. And uh, I think we were growing into this feeling when uh, I remember th- this was a feeling which was going until early 2000 years that actually Ukraine is a country which you have to leave and uh, the El Dorado is somewhere else it can be United States it can be Europe it can be Australia it can be Israel whatever but then uh, gradually it started to change I think it started to change with the Orange Revolution then it started to change gradually of course during Euromaidan and now I have a very specific feeling. Of course, we have four, uh, six million people who left the country because of the war, but most of the people who are whom I meet here in Ukraine, whom I meet in the towns which were uh, under heavy fighting, uh, these people want to stay. These people do not want to leave. And many people who actually left, most mostly these are women with their kids, they really want to come back. How how did it change? How how do you feel and why did it change? And it's not only about Ukraine, but specifically about the eastern Ukraine, the, the eastern parts, the Donbass. Because again, in the 90s, 2000, many people outside of the region and inside of the region were thinking about this region as a really something that left out from history. They can nothing that can be here. And it was kind of a very depressed. And now we see that this is really the center maybe of the European history right now. How did it change? Did you did you feel the, maybe the tipping points in history when it changed? When Ukraine turned from the country where you want to, uh, that you want to flee to a country which is during the war, you want to stay and you want to come back? It's, it's a great question. And, you know, I've... I've watched largely from afar, and I definitely have that impression. I have the impression that you know, the future you know, of Europe, if not the world, is now being decided in Ukraine, and that it has changed tremendously. And the one thing that you know, h- historians know is that life is filled with surprises. You know, many political scientists like to have models and like to say, well, you know, given that everyone acts rationally, we can predict X, Y, and Z. But historians know that life is full of radical contingency, that our ability to predict what will happen is extremely limited, that everything is possible. So the fact that things change, that societies change, that people change, that, that's not hard for me to take in. In some sense, that's the expectation. Now, the question of exactly why I would disentangle from the question of how One thing I find myself often telling my students, especially the graduate students who are getting ready to write dissertations in history, is that, you know, in the best case, given good sources, you know, and, you know, given an exhaustive, energetic, critical relationship to those sources, we can tell you what happened. We can tell you what, we can tell you who, what, when, where, and to some extent how. Why is always going to be beyond what we can confidently claim because causality is always going to be speculative, because life is always both overdetermined and underdetermined. You know, at any given moment, there are multiple fa- overlapping factors at play, 
and you can't do a control study. So you can't go back, you know, and run the scene again, holding one variable constant, you know, in the interest of determining what's causal and what's confounding. Um, so that's, it's always very speculative when we talk about causality. But I definitely felt like, like things were moving, um, uh, certainly in 2004 during the Orange Revolution, although I should say that you know, my husband was very captivated by the Orange Revolution, and I was less captivated by the Orange Revolution. Um, I don't know what, how much that has to do with the fact that I was somewhat less captivated by Yulia Tymoshenko, and I don't know how much that has to do with the fact that one of my first historical obsessions when I was a a kid, really, or an adolescent who first became interested in reading about history was about Evita Peron. Um, and I, I was very immersed in that story of the, the beautiful, charismatic, virgin goddess saving Argentina story. And there's something about Yulia Tymoshenko that struck me a little bit as a little bit suspicious, or perhaps just because she reminded me of Evita Peron. But for whatever reason, I was interested, but I wasn't completely blown away. Um, by the Orange Revolution, although I was, you know, optimistic, I hoped it was going to go well. Um, I was happy to be in Ukraine in the summer of 2005. Afterwards, where things seemed to be in a good mood, I was, um, I was working in the archives there. People were, it was sunny, cheerful. I was in Kiev. I was in Lviv. It was a great trip. Um, it was really the Maidan that, that completely captivated me. And I think that was to a large extent um, because, I'm, because I'm not a political scientist, because I'm a historian and it really is, in English we say intellectual historian, but that, uh, that sounds very strange to any, anyone outside you know, American universities. What does that mean? It's really about the, it's the history of ideas and the history of thinkers, the history of philosophy. And so I, I've long been interested in the history of philosophy. And as you know, this is something we share. We both work on a lot of the similar continental philosophy. You know, and the, the work of Havel that had so captivated me when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I, I pursued and I have pursued really throughout my, you know, my whole adult life. And in part, you know, in part because that, that philosophy of dissent, this idea of, of living in truth, what is truth? What is subjectivity? What is responsibility? Um, what does it mean to live in truth? You know, is truth something tangible? Can you hold it? You know, like your keys, can you put it in your pocket? The first word I learned in Czech was pravda. You know, and I was I was blown away by how these Czech philosophers I met used that word. I mean, it had never sounded like that in English to me, like something that was was as real and as solid as keys that you could hold and put in your pocket and something you were potentially willing to die for. And I, I continued to be you know, fascinated by that tradition and where it came from. And the book I'm working on now, have been working on for a long time, has to do with phenomenology and encounters among thinkers, really be all the way between Germany you know, and Russia in different languages and different places connected to phenomenology and existentialism. You know, and these ideas that had so captivated me you know, people like when, when well, let me back up. Let me say, when Václav Havel came to the United States in February 1990, I was a senior in high school. It was my last year in high school. And he gave a speech in February 1990 to a, a joint meeting of the American Congress, and that's the House of Representatives and the Senate, which is a very big deal when you get both of those bodies together. And he stood up there and said, Consciousness precedes being and not the other way around, as the Marxists claim. Now, of course, nobody had any idea what that meant. I mean, I'm very skeptical even looking back that very many of those congressmen or senators remembered that passage in German ideology where Marx and Engels write about being preceding consciousness and how your consciousness is derivative of your objective position in the socioeconomic order. Very unlikely that you know anybody there knew that. Certainly I, you know, as a 17 year old, didn't know that at all, but it sounded very, very beautiful. 
you know, and it was the moment when we all kind of fell in love with Václav Havel. Whatever it meant, it didn't matter. It sounded very beautiful. And one of the journalists said, you know, wow, if I could talk like that, I would run for God. When I tell you that Ukrainians are not so much passionate with their past, but really want to really focused on the future, and that makes a, a big difference between Russia and Ukraine right now. Would you agree with that? I have that intuition. I'm, I think I'm not there now, and I'm sure my intuition is biased by the fact that I feel like that that is Ukraine's strength. Um, and that in some ways is the, I, I, the strength of the message that Ukraine has to send to the world. You know, Putin wants to restore the Soviet Union. Um, the rest of the world is not so nostalgic about the Soviet Union. So that's not really a, a great selling story in terms of PR abroad. Um, nationalism has long, you know, been, you know, discredited in various ways. Um, even anti-imperialist battles that seem to depend on raising national consciousness, people are very suspicious of. And so one of the things I find myself continually emphasizing, you know, in my role as cultural mediator, translator, you know, person who plays that role of the bridge um, between one part of the world and another, you know, is that there, you know, there's a whole new generation of Ukrainians who don't want to refight the battles of, of the UPA, you know, and the Red Army. There's a whole new generation of Ukrainians who want a future that is cosmopolitan, that is open to the world, that is, you know, based on self-organization and responsibility, um, that is, you know, excited about the possibility of creating a better future for our children as opposed to restoring um, a nostalgic past or vindicating the sufferings of their grandparents, you know, or, you know, you know, or with guilt, you know, apologizing for the sins of their grandparents. I mean, one of the, the things I've been trying to talk about is the relationship between guilt and responsibility, you know, and, you know, at some point, you know, we have to look at the past with eyes wide open, all of us, wherever we are, you know, and say it's not, it's not about atoning for grandparents or vindicating grandparents or getting revenge on behalf of grandparents. It's about what kind of world we're going to create for our children. Um, I mean, and you, I mean, you and Tanya and you know, Tim and I, you know, share the fact that we're parents. This is not unusual. There, are, of course, many, many people who are parents. But you bring you bring children into the world, and it's an act of faith, you know, that the world is worth saving, that it's possible to save, you know, and it's also a commitment to saying we are going to look in the future and try to do what we can to create, you know, a better world for these people. And many people have pointed out that there's a huge, there's a glaring generational divide between the Ukrainian leadership and the Russian leadership, which I think is not irrelevant. I think when we talk about future nationalism, there is one thing that strikes me, is that Ukrainians now have a, a very strong community feeling, the feeling of a community. It's very difficult to explain to, to people in the West, because I think in the West there is a certain mistrust to anything which is brotherhood, the, the so-called concepts of brotherhood or sisterhood, community, community identity. But I think this is because in the Western world, the key evil of the 20th century was associated with nationalism and with the idea of community, with the authoritarian community that erases the individual. Whereas here in Eastern Europe, the great evil was different. It was rather coming from the less left than from the right. And the when I look at Ukrainians, when I look at myself, myself who I am, I'm, I've always considered myself as a, people, a person rather closer to liberal values, individual rights, etc. But here I understand why Ukrainians are, are so much focused on the idea of community, because the community for them is the future. If there is no community, there is no future for their children, including for their children. So you cannot really escape your community. You cannot just take a plane and go to Australia 
and have a wonderful life there because the community will still be with you in 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 your in your consciousness in your memory in in your heart and here this understanding that look there will be no individual rights if if the the community does not preserve itself you will not survive as an individual if your community does not survive and here i find i find a kind of a compromise between patriotism and liberalism which are probably difficult to find anywhere else uh also a compromise between a tradition and modernity which i think it's very difficult to understand for americans because in 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 the united states you have a big clash between liberals and conservatives in ukraine we rather have their i think in many aspects their ability to find to find a common ground and when i talk to some people from the central europe in particular the baltic states but also also central europe which you described czech republic slovakia poland i feel this i hear the the same feeling sometimes maybe poland is not the best example right now because we have again this clash between liberals and conservatives but with the baltic states uh, i i i hear the same story do you think do you think i i'm right in this in this uh, estimation or i think or you think it's it's a little bit overestimated Well you're you're there and I'm here. So I'm yeah, everything I understand about how Ukrainians are feeling now, you know, is what I'm taking in from you know, my friends and colleagues and interlocutors. And this tension between the individualism that is so central to liberalism and community which in some ways was discredited by an association with nationalism which is discredited by an association with fascism that runs through all of like as you know all of modernity and political philosophy and nobody has ever gotten the balance perfectly you know, everybody's been struggling i mean i was you know as an american i didn't have a sense of just how far on the side of radical individualism kind of cult of individualism the united states was until i left the country and the first place i i went when i left the country was was israel and i was shocked by this kind of communal community ethic which is a very different way of organizing one's identity but the tension between those things is always with us i don't think there's any kind of utopian perfect balance you know you go too radically one way or too radically the other way and everything falls apart and america really has a problem with a kind of individualism that it, it's as you know the the quip goes everyone trying to claim that they were born in a log cabin they built themselves you know that there's a failure to recognize you know kind of in heideggerian terms let's say that daseinist ibershon mitzai that we are always already in the world with other people you know and therefore like our our choices are not just our choices or just for us because they also affect other people and certainly the pandemic was a moment of coming to that realization for many people who hadn't realized it earlier i mean the the other important thing about ukraine and i've been i've been um trying to direct americans to um volodymyr kulak kulik's work on this because he's actually done the kind of sociological work that is not the kind of work that i do is this transformation or or evolution of what it means to be Ukrainian towards a civic identity. And this was something Slavko Hrtsak spoke about a lot during the Maidan that was kind of very interesting and important to me. Like what does it mean to create a kind of civic patriotism? This is very important to Slava Varkarchuk as well. And we had many many conversations about this when he was at Yale. Can we have you know can we have a kind of a, you know a civic patriotism that's not based on nationalism in an ethnic sense? can we have an inclusive civic patriotism in some ways that's the that's the liberal cosmopolitan fantasy you know and that was one of the many things that captivated me you know about the maidan that it was it was a moment when you know people on the right and people on the left and jews and muslims and orthodox christians and uniate catholics and workers and intellectuals and parents and children it was a moment of that coming together It was a moment of coming together with a sense of belonging to a community. 
you know, with a sense of being part of a society that wanted to live differently, that was not based on blood, you know, and was not based on ethnicity, you know, and was inclusive of people's subjectivities as they make a conscious choice to opt in. In some ways, that is our liberal fantasy, right? You know, our liberal fantasy is community as something that we also, that we choose, you know, that is open to people choosing it. Right. But at the same time, uh, I think that uh, Ukrainian experience also can put into the question some of the um, liberal and maybe constructivist theories. For example, I'm putting into question the theory of imagined community by Benedict Anderson. And I think that the key argument, of course, it's very important to have this constructed idea of the nation, imagined community, etc. But the key argument is that uh, it, the, it, it doesn't explain why people really go to the front line and ready to die for it. So it's it's uh, it's it's a big difference. Uh, imagined community of uh, of a nation and imagined community of a football club, right? Uh, and um, I think that, that there is something that it, there is something we should we should really think deeper. For example, the community is not only about knowledge about imagination, about cognition. The community is also even not only about emotion, but community is always about action and will. So the will to do something, the will to sacrifice something. And and these are the concepts which are which I really need to discover right now. And how to find this balance. Because in my impression, the liberalism uh, of the 20th century, post-World War II liberalism, kind of forgot one of the major slogans of the French Revolution, which is brotherhood or sisterhood, which is also a liberal slogan in a way, if we take the French Revolution in that in, in that sense. What do you think? Now that, that would bring me back to, I think part of my sympathy for that, you know, despite you know having... I'm very rooted in American individualism, like lots of Americans, and I've always felt very much like a kind of bezerodny cosmopolite in you know, various typical ways, this kind of rootless cosmopolitan wonder. Um, I've never been all nostalgic about where I grew up, or I've never had a desire to return to that place or anything like that. But I think part of my romanticism comes from having come of age as a historian under the mentorship of so many Polish dissidents who were involved with solidarity. And that legacy of Solidarność, um, that that moment, and this also this also has to do with how I saw the Maidan and what so captivated me, because I was in a very strange position. I was, I was an American watching the Maidan in Vienna, but to some extent, I saw it most profoundly through Polish eyes. And I saw that my my friends in Poland who are significantly older than I am, who are veterans of solidarity, I saw what they saw, which is that moment of coming, that moment of solidarity, that moment of coming together across all sorts of divides, across all sorts of differences on behalf of values that unite you with the community. They... They knew better. They, they knew better than anybody else that it lasted 20 seconds after communism fell. But they also understood that it was that extraordinary, precious, transcendent moment that most people never experience in their lifetimes, and they never counted on seeing a second time. You know, which, which I think is why they were so emotionally invested in the Maidan. And when I saw, you know, Adam Miknik and Kosta Gebert and Alex Smoller and Agnieszka Holland in, in Kiev in 2014, they were ecstatic. I mean, there was something, it was different from other foreigners who were just, who were, who were supporters or who were, were a part of a fan club or who were you know, committed allies. I mean, there was something very personal for them. That sense of that possibility exists the possibility to transcend our own individual interest in the name of a kind of solidarity that has a somewhat, you know, metaphysical, mystical element on it of it. That's not just the imagined community that culminated our understanding of nation building. You know, that, that was something more. Um, And that it was a privilege to be able, even from a distance to watch that happen. 
And, and to me, that was the, the miracle of the Maidan, that such a thing can happen. Because even if it can only happen for kind of a flicker of a second, even if that kind of solidarity is only possible for, you know, for, you know, what the, the philosophers would call an, an Augenblick, that kind of that, the blink of an eye, the fact that it's possible at all, even for that Augenblick, means that it is possible, means that we human beings have that capacity to go beyond ourselves. I think when you live uh, through such historical events, you are even beyond the concept of possibility because uh, you are you understand that something that you were thinking is impossible is actually real. And that is also coming about the war because I think before, uh, before 2014, before 24th of February, many people were thinking that the war is impossible and then it suddenly became so real. But uh, I would like to talk about the war a bit later. But let me come back to this feeling of Maidan. So I think people on uh, the Solidarność were really perceiving on, on Ukrainian Maidan that the values there that they have cherished are moving farther to the east. And uh, this is a, a great question for Ukrainians because many Ukrainians who observed and who who supported the, the protests in Belarus in 2020 also had a feeling that this kind of this spillover of this liberal energy or freedom-loving energy, and while nobody believed in this energy in the West, it was still very, very strong uh, in, in such countries as Ukraine and Belarus. Do you think that this is possible in Russia? Because before you answer, I have, I have two kind of a dilemma. The first, I think that I do believe that there is something... Uh, something, uh, something universalist in this idea of human rights and freedom, and that means that they need to spill over and go to other other countries, and finally they 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 need to reach Russia. But the second thing, which is a skeptic in me, says that in the Russian intellectual tradition, cultural tradition, you don't really have a big basis for these ideas. They, they don't really uh, develop them, even compared to Ukrainians, in which these ideas of anti-tyrannical policy was throughout the 19th century, early 20th century. So what is your, uh, your reading of this? Oh, this, is, this is the million-dollar question everyone's been asking. And I know for many of my Ukrainian friends, are, they're frustrated or irritated you know, with, with me or anybody else who has not completely given up on the Russians. There's a feeling that, okay, it's a lost cause. They can't be reached. They will never be reached. And this also goes for many members of the, you know, the Russian opposition intelligentsia, which, of course, is you know, almost all the Russians I know, you know so, which is not a representative sample. Um, I, I, as I, I said before, as a historian, I think anything is possible. I'm not willing to give up on the Russians or anybody else, you know, which doesn't mean it's likely, but I think, I think it is possible. I think shifts in consciousness do occur. I mean, one of my my Russian friends, who is a, a mathematician who has long been in emigration, we were we were writing to each other at the beginning of the war, and I said, "Is there is there any chance of getting through to people? You know, I, this can't be a country of 144 million sadists who just want to go slaughter Ukrainians. Like, is there any chance?" Of, of reaching these people, you know, and like many members of the Russian intelligentsia, he feels like it's very, very hard to reach the Russian masses. You know, he said, you know, they things penetrate very, very slowly. People change very, very slowly. They take in things that are not that are different from what they're already thinking extremely slowly. And then he said, but when there is a shift, on the rare historical moments where there is a shift, it can be absolutely massive. And so I, I still hold out hope that the, the other thing the, uh, that was one of the most hopeful things anyone has said to me since the wars began um, was this conversation actually I was doing with, with Oksana Forostina um, uh, for the Pen Club. And the, one, of, um, one of the representatives of the Pen Club, who is a writer from Southeast Asia, who had as a journalist, covered war and revolution in Southeast Asia for decades. And he was speaking to me and Oksana afterwards. I think it was already off 
recording at this time, but I'm sure he wouldn't mind my passing this on. And he said to both of us, he said, well, the one thing I can tell you, if it makes you feel better from all these years spent covering war and revolution in Southeast Asia, is that sometimes, you know, a, a dictatorship seems most stable, you know, and masses of people most unwilling to change, you know, and tyranny most invincible five minutes before it falls. And so I've been clinging to that, you know, and I still think we have to push on every crack because you never know. I mean, this is part, okay, I should say part of this is my, my Arantianism. Um, and here I, I won't just talk about the, the Arant of Eichmann in Jerusalem, but I'll talk about the Arant of the human condition and her, her hope in natality you know, both literally and metaphorically, that each new birth is this dose of radical contingency injected into the world. And that this capacity to begin, the capacity to initiate something new is really what makes us human beings. And you can never know what the consequences of an action will be because of the boundlessness of human interrelatedness as consequences literally go on indefinitely. But the fact that we are able to initiate, you know, that we are able to act, you know, that we are able to birth something new is the miracle that, that you know, saves humanity or potentially saves humanity. Um, and in that sense, too, I am, I am unwilling to completely you know, give up on, on, on all of these Russians, although I, I know it's wrenching and horrific. Um, and I, I should say, you know, I was very nearly about to give up on my own country. My husband and I had basically decided before the November 2020 elections and then before January 6th that if Trump wins again, if the fasc attempted fascist coup succeeds, we're not going back to the States. Like I, I was, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I felt like I had thrown everything I had, you know, and if the American people were going to choose fascism, I just wanted to get my kids out of there. And that, I think that also makes me more reluctant to, to judge or to give up on the Russians. Let me uh, come back into history and uh, ask what you think about 20th century, in particular about Stalinism. I have an impression that uh, what we are witnessing now is the continuation of the fact that Stalinism was not, and communism in general, uh, in the Soviet form, was not condemned as severely as Nazism and fascism were condemned. And we see that despite Nazism and fascism were condemned, they can, they can be reborn. But with Stalinism, we see that this lack of condemnation Uh, this reluctance to condemn Stalin, this kind of a perception of Stalin as primarily as somebody who uh, who won against the Nazism, against Hitler, uh, regardless of the fact that he was probably uh, even a bigger criminal than Hitler, this uh, turned into this situation which we are witnessing now, both in Russia, in which the cult of Stalin has reemerged, and we see Russia, current Russia, which is seeing its identity through the year of 1945. It, it really wants to come back to 1945, both externally and internally. And 1945 is still Stalinism. But we also see uh, this reluctance to, to condemn Stalinism uh, in, in the way how the major powers were dealing with Putin, who is clearly, especially after, after let's say, 2007, clearly a person who would like to bring uh, Russia back, not only to the Soviet Union, but the, to the Stalinist version of it. Do you think that is, that is a problem? I think it's an enormous problem. And I think it's not just a question of condemning. It's not just a question of saying this was you know, unambiguously, unambivalently evil. It's also a question of understanding. You know, really in that big sense of Verstehen that the Germans like to talk about, you know, it's, it's a failure to grapple with what it was, how it happened, what it meant, you know, what it did to people. You know, so I would say it's not, it's not just about a failure for a Russian state to make the appropriate announcements or official apologies. 
I think it's something much deeper. I think it's a real failure to grapple with and come to terms with that. And I, you know, I've understood that slowly over, over the years of, you know, over the 30 years or so that I've known something or understood something about Russia. Um, and I'm not the first person, obviously, to notice it. Peter Pomerantsev writes about this much. I guess writes about this. Many people write about this. Um, the fact that there was no clear division between the category of, of perpetrators and the category of victims has problematized that. You know, in the, it, with the Germans, it was like there was a clear group of like if you were a, a Jew, if you were a, you know a Roma, if you were a homosexual, it was very clear who was doing what to whom for the most part, and that gets much, much messier because of the suicidal nature of Stalinism. But I think there's there's more to it than that. I was The last time I was in Russia was 2016, and it was really important to me that I go back there before I finish the book about the Maidan. I felt like you know, I had, you know, I was going to Ukraine fairly often and, and easily. I mean, at that point, Americans had no longer for a long time needed visas. And so if I had occasion to go or I was nearby or somebody invited me or, you know, I could just get on a plane and go, you know, be it for a couple of weeks or a couple of days. But it was still much more difficult to go to Russia. But also since the Maidan, it was unclear if, you know, it, it was even going to be safe to go to Russia. I mean, my husband was definitely not going to Russia. He was uneasy about my going to Russia. Um, it was much harder to get a visa, but I felt like it would it was really important that I sit in the same room in Russia with my Russian colleagues and look them in the eye and really try to understand what was happening. And I, I had an occasion. My husband was very nervous about this possibility, and I was, I was nervous too because you know we, our kids were even smaller then, and I was terrified of something happening and I won't be able to get back to them. Um, I had an occasion to go in the framework of these um, a program called the Debates on Europe, that were being sponsored by the Fischer Stiftung and a couple other German foundations. Um, together with local partners in various post-Soviet states. Um, and so I had I had been invited to a couple of these before, but I'd never been able to come because it was always during the semester or I was on the wrong side of the Atlantic. I think there was a meeting in Minsk. There was a meeting in Kharkiv that Serhii Jadan co-hosted. And then there was going to be this meeting in Petersburg. And so it was, it was a very structured framework with these you know, very respectable German foundations and lots of foreigners coming. Um, they, they thought they could get me uh, the appropriate visa that wasn't just a tourist visa. Um, so I, I decided I was going to try to go in that framework. It turned out to be very hard to get the visa, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. Um, but I did go and there were you know, several days of discussions that, that which were quite, they were strange in various ways. One of which ways, one of which was that in some sense, you know, there were discussions that were occasioned by the Maidan, the annexation of Crimea, the war in the Donbass. But the Ukrainians were conspicuously missing. I think Serhii Zhadan, who had been the, their, I think, key partner who had co-hosted in Kharkiv, um, from what I remember refused or not refused, but declined to go to Russia because he was on the list of people to be arrested perfectly reasonably. Um, I mean, why would you cross a border knowing that you're quite certain to quickly get arrested? Was it 2016? It was, I'm pretty sure it was 2016, maybe May of 2016. I think for, 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 for many Ukrainians, it was just impossible from the moral side of, of, of the of the situation to go to Russia at that point. Not 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 because you would be arrested, but because it would be impossible to go to Russia after after 2014. Well so for perhaps for overdetermined reasons, because the Germans got very nervous that their Ukrainian colleagues were going to be arrested and they didn't want to put them at risk because Ukrainians were reluctant to go for various reasons. It was a strange conversation because it really ended up to some extent being a German-Russian conversation about Ukraine. There were a couple polls there. I was the only American. I'm not sure how that ended up being the case. Um, but they were fascinating conversations, and I felt like it was a privilege to be there. And I'm very grateful you know, for having had the, op the, the invitation. And there, it, the, the discussions over the course of, of 
of three or four days came to center around two things. One of them was who is a real European. The Germans seemed to think it was self-evident that they were the center of Europe, despite what had happened during the Second World War. You know, now everyone acknowledges, you know, Poles, Czechs, Hungarians, Slovaks, etc. Um, the Ukrainians, possibly, like they may have now proven themselves during the Maidan. Russians, um, could there be a chance? Were they interested? Um, and then what began to disturb me about that conversation as the only non-European in the room, like I'm not European, I will never be European in some sense, I have no stake in this question. But what struck me is that there was some kind of a tacit assumption that if you're European, then you have some kind of divinely bestowed right to live under the rule of law and in a regime of human rights with respect for human dignity. And if you're not European, well, we just throw up our arms because we all know in places like Russia, there's never been human rights in the rule of law. So what can you do? And I felt like, well, wait, this isn't a morally sustainable position. Either you believe in human rights, in which case you believe in them for everybody, or you don't, and then, then you don't. And so, but, but again, like I'm looking at this from the side because I'm not a European. Um, but then the other thing that was really central that I was fascinated by was this discussion about, um, about who should apologize to whom. And the Germans felt, I think, to some extent superior because they had very clearly, you know, and explicitly, you know, apologized for Nazism and made it clear how guilty they felt. And now it was the turn of the Russians to respond in kind as the largest post-Soviet republic turned country, you know, that was, that had inherited the rights of successorship of the Soviet Union. They should now apologize for Stalinism. You know, yeah. And then there was a lot of yelling, you know, back and forth about dead grandparents and particularly dead grandmothers, you know, and I'm, you know, my grandmother suffered this and that and the other thing, all of which were horrific, you know, all of, you know, and I'm not now going to apologize, you know, for what she did in these extreme circumstances, you know, and so there was a lot of both like guilt on behalf of grandmothers and how can we atone for grandmothers, you know, and vindication of grandmothers, revenge, you know, on behalf of grandmothers. There was a lot of discussion about Pokayanya, you know, which is you know, repentance doesn't quite have the weight in English it has in Russian, but this constant Pokayanya, like, are we going to have real repentance? And I, I felt like the discussion was also kind of missing the point, you know, that the point was in my intervention was for whatever it's worth, was to say that, okay, here we have Germans, we have Russians, we're talking about Nazism and talking about Stalinism. Is the most important question really who should apologize to whom on behalf of whose dead grandmother? Or maybe the most important question is really how can we, looking back, understand how this happened? You know, in what circumstances, under what conditions, you know, with the exploitation of what kind of human weaknesses, does morality completely break down? How do we end up in hell? How do we end up in a reign of terror? You know, how do people end up doing things they never would have imagined they would have done? Like that's like, how do we understand how that happened? Because clearly there's a human potential for that to happen. And if the human potential exists for it to have happened, then the human potential exists for it to happen again. And how are we going to understand how that happened in such a way that maybe we could take steps to prevent it from happening again? And I felt like that was the question that should really be grappled with that somehow was being subtly evaded. And I, I, when I was, I, I was later in Vienna and I was talking to a friend there who's a sociologist um, who's originally from Kiev, grew up in Kiev, but has spent her whole academic career in, in Germany and Austria. She writes in both, both Russian and German. And she was doing sociological interviews in Russia. And she came back and she, and she said, one of the questions she was asking was, how can we prevent something like Stalinist terror from happening again. And she came back and she said, Marcy, not only did my respondents not have an answer, they didn't understand the question. She said, for them, Stalinism was like, like, it was like a tsunami. I mean, Stalinist terror was like a rainstorm. You can't stop the rain from coming. I mean, the best case, you can, you can have an umbrella on hand, but if she used the term in German, Naturgewalt, 
like it was this kind of violent act of nature. I mean, so you can you can try to like be prepared to cover your head and open your umbrella, but, but you can't actually, you know, there's no point in talking about how we could prevent it from coming. And I think this in some sense is the tragic flaw, not that Stalinism just hasn't been condemned, but that it hasn't been grappled with and understood in such a way that people feel a sense of agency to prevent it from happening again. I think there is something even worse because some of these people do not think how to avoid the rain. They think in terms how to become this rain, how to be this tsunami. And I think that this is this is something related to the fact that they have this lack of agency. So this is precisely because they cannot even think about influencing the event or preventing the the terror. The only thing they can escape from this question morally is to say, okay, this terror is justified. I'm the part of it. I will be the part of it. Uh, and I think this is this is when the masochist is turning into a sadist. And I think this is this is something that is that is going on in in those in the minds of those Russian citizens who are supporting the war. Because one of the things I'm keeping I keep on asking is that okay, you can be afraid of going. Uh, on the protests, etc. But but uh, eighty to ninety percent of Russians support this, and this is what we see from the Vox Populi. We, this is from the see from the public opinion service, etc. That's the, on this question of masochism and sadism. I've been thinking about that, and I, to some extent, I've been thinking that through the prism of, of Belarus. Um, one of the things I found really interesting um, and inspiring about what's happening in Belarus, and I. I I learned about this from my philosopher friend, um, Olga Sparaga there, who was very, uh, she was both in prison and she was very active in both the feminist movement before, she's also a continental philosopher, um, and then in this anti-Lukashenko protest. And one of the things that I learned from her was that the language that Belarusian feminists had developed to speak about domestic violence which is a huge problem there. And I think Yulia Mitskevich said that one out of every three Belarusian women has been a victim of domestic violence, which is extraordinary. That language to describe domestic violence became a language that men and women alike were using to understand how society was being treated by, by Lukashenko. And I found that fascinating. One, I felt like it was a revolutionary moment in feminism and an inclusive feminism, you know, a feminism that invited in men that had a whole new model for solidarity and horizontal solidarity. But it was also something I started thinking about in a different way when that um, extremely gruesome phone call emerged. And I'm assuming it was it was legitimate. I mean, in the sense that it was not um, that it was a real phone call with the the graphic descriptions of of torture between the 20 year old soldier and his phone call to his 40 year old mother. Do you know which phone call I'm I'm talking about? It was yes, kind of intercepted. Yes. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm not recommending any of your listeners listen to it because I, in some sense, wish I hadn't listened to it because it was so upsetting, but. I mean, it was it, it was a twenty year old kid, really, you know, calling his uh, you know, Russian soldier, calling his you know approximately forty year old mother in Russia, you know, and describing in graphic, gruesome detail these torture methods, you know, that he was using on captured Ukrainians, in such a way that, I mean, it was sadistic in an but with almost a kind of quasi-sexual titillation to it. I mean, you're, you're the native speaker, so you can tell me if I'm reading this wrong because my, my Russian is not perfect. But there was something almost kind of voyeuristic and sexual going on in the conversation between the mother and the son. And the mother clearly was very interested in hearing about this, you know, in a way that was, of course, profoundly disturbing. But then the real revelation came towards the end of this conversation where the son says, like, yeah, I, you know, I think about wouldn't it be great to try out some of these strategies, some of these techniques on dad. And then they start talking about, oh, wouldn't it be enjoyable to use some of these torture techniques on, you know, this, this boy's, this young man's father. We, of course, don't know exactly what the relationship is between that father and the mother anymore. 
But what what struck me about this was not just that it was voyeuristic, it was sadistic, it was gruesome, it was cruel, but that there was clearly a deep history of domestic violence in this family. I mean, something was really, really wrong, you know, both between the mother and the son and the father, you know, in a way that it's obviously a different way of applying how to understand personal histories of domestic violence with how to understand you know, a, a sadistic regime. But there's some relationship because there was some kind of intergenerational trauma, you know, and deep history of a relationship between violence and intimacy and sadism that was running through this family. And I, I thought, my God, like a whole team of forensic psychiatrists, what they could do with this 10-minute conversation. That's like several dissertations right there. That's not surprising because... Uh... Uh, we are accustomed to the fact that the politics in Russia, is, especially the external politics, is very often described in sexual terms, in in the in the terms of including the sexual violence, and uh, they 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 tend to describe Ukraine-Russian relations also in terms of these family relations, when where Ukraine is a bad woman who just left this good husband and therefore should be punished for that. Unfortunately, this is this is uh, this is the way how many people think there. Look, Marcy, thank you so much. I think we will end this conversation, but I have the feeling that we just started. Yes. So it would be it would be of course it's just a kind of introduction to 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 many topics we could describe because actually I didn't even start asking those questions which I prepared about Hannah Arendt or about uh, responsibility and guilt or about some, some, some other things. But maybe we will leave it um, until the next moment. Mm. Thanks so much for joining this po podcast. Uh, uh, Marcy Shore, a famous uh, American intellectual. And thank you so much for all your work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And I am, I am sending all possible good karma your way. And I hope to see you soon. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor at ukraineworld.org. Let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Subscribe to Ukraine World on social networks, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and YouTube. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.